Uh, well, good morning again. If you have been with us, you might know that uh, during this season from Easter to Pentecost, we've been try, trying to tease out some of the implications of the resurrection, that if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if He is, in fact, making all things new, what are some of those new things that we are being brought into? And we, we have seen that He brings us into a new creation. He gives us a new self. He gives us a new spirit, a new name, uh, a new command. And this morning for our final uh, week in this little mini-series, uh, we're going to say that it also gives us a new hope. Not Star Wars Episode Four, but he, does, he gives us a new hope. Uh, about a month or so ago, I went for the first time to the Civil Rights Museum downtown. And, it, you know, it's a pretty sobering experience if you've, if you've been there. The impact of that place comes from just story after story and image after image of people of color being hurt and attacked and assaulted. You see all of these stories. You see the... Um, the tear gas and the, the you know, the, the nightsticks on the Selma Bridge. You see the um, Freedom Rider buses set on fire, and you hear the stories of churches being bombed and um, houses being bombed and the Nashville sit-ins where there were just mobs of people just attacking these folks that were just sitting still at the counter. Uh, there were fire hoses turned on and dogs unleashed and story after story after story is just, it's just awful. And, and, and as you kind of go through this thing, one of the things that's so striking is that there's just, there's this, one of the big thrusts in the civil rights movement was this commitment to nonviolence, this commitment to not retaliate, but to respond in love. And it, it begs the question, what, what compelled these men and these women and these children to keep showing up with a spirit of love and with peace as they're peacefully marching or, or sitting or kneeling in or going on these rides when they know they're just facing brutality? And the answer to that question is hope. Not, they had hope, not just hope that they would one day get civil rights, but it was a hope of a vision of the world that is, is fueled by this Christian hope. It's a Christian idea of the end of all things in many ways is what fueled a big part of the civil rights movement. In fact, Martin Luther King himself said famously that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it is bending towards justice. That is a unique Christian perspective, this idea that one day, someday, the world will see the justice it craves, that all things will be healed and made right and redeemed. And you see this hope animated through the songs that they sang as they marched. So many of the songs that they sang were, were Christian hymns. In fact, two of the most popular hymns that were sung during this era uh, were, were two uh, Christian hymns written, both written by Charles Tinley, We Shall Overcome and Beams of Heaven. And I want to read you just an excerpt from each of these songs because I want you to hear the hope in these songs. The first one, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. There's this hope, one day, someday, we shall overcome this. And then listen to the beams of heaven. Last, the last verse of Beams of Heaven goes, Burdens now may crush me down, disappointments all around, troubles speak in mournful sigh, sorrow through a tear-stained eye, 
There is a world where pleasure reigns. No mourning, I mean no crying, no mourning soul shall roam its plains. And to that land of peace and glory, I shall want to go someday. I shall want to go someday. I shall want to go someday. Now, what is this land, this world of peace and glory that these hymns are speaking about? That world, that hope is what I want to show you from the Bible itself this morning. Because that hope is the core of, in many ways, what fueled the civil rights movement and many other examples I could have listed. This, understand, this unique understanding of what you could call the Christian hope compelled them to keep enduring, to keep moving on with, with, a, with a sense of love. Three things I want to show you about what the Christian hope really is. I want you to see its magnitude, its wonder, and its access its magnitude, its wonder, and its access. So let's just look at this one at a time. First, its magnitude. Uh, Look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is the Apostle John, and he's looking and he's seeing the end of human history, and what does he see? He does not see souls floating in the clouds called heaven. He sees a new heaven and a new earth, a renewed, completely restored, actual, like, planet, concrete, made right, restored, renovated. He, you know, in some ways you could say he sees a new Memphis without the cracks in the bridges. He sees a restored Tennessee. He sees, like, actual grass and hills and concrete and people and cities and, and animals real, tangible, physical world that has been restored and made new. You know, when our kids were younger, we used to watch Toy Story 2 a lot. Toy Story 1 was too creepy with the weird, like, doll spider thing that comes out of the, like, the the bed. Toy Story 3 was way too sad. Toy Story 4 did not exist at the time, but Toy Story 2, sweet spot. And if you remember that movie, uh, Woody the doll gets captured by this really sketchy dude that wants to sell him and all of this paraphernalia to this toy dealer in Japan. But, toy, uh, but Woody's arm had fallen off earlier in the movie, and so the sketchy dude hires that old man to come and to restore Woody back to his former glory. And you remember that old guy? He comes out with that box with like, you know, it opens up, has all of these like millions of little mini tools in it. And he puts Woody the doll in that, that little chair that looks like a little dentist chair. And he starts to meticulously go to work. He puts on his little kind of magnifying glass eye thing. And he puts out the, takes out a little tool and he, and he, and he wipes off his eyes and cleans out his ears. He, he, he does a little bit of spray paint and puts that rosy glow back into Woody's cheeks. And he, and he paints over the, the, the chipped paint in his, on his body and he slowly kind of sews back together his arm. And by the time that it's all over, Woody is, is beautifully restored, almost beyond what he was originally. He, he's, he's completely made new. And I love that image because in some ways that is the image of what Jesus is doing and what, what this passage is saying that God is up to in the world. God's doing that on a massive cosmic scale. Look at verse 5. He says, I am making all things new. That he is going to restore all of creation. The whole world gets a complete makeover. That is the magnitude of the Christian hope. 
all things. It's not us going up to heaven, but as verse 2 says, it's heaven coming down to this world. Now, if you think about this, think about this. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never does miracles? If you, if you ever read through the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it, it, there's never an example where Jesus does something simply to impress people. He never does, some, he never like does a miracle just, to, just as a flex. It, it's always for the sake of something else. There's a different purpose. He could have, though. He could have just showed you how strong he was. He could have said, hey, everybody, look at this. I can shoot fireballs out of my hands. Or, uh, hey, you see that dude's hand? Bam! Just turned his fingers into strips of bacon. Whatever. He could have, but he did not. What do you see him doing? He is, he's healing the hungry. He's, he's enabling paralyzed people to walk again. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. And what does that show you? That shows you that Jesus' whole ministry is in many ways just a movie trailer of what is to come. This is what he is doing with the whole world. People were not designed to be hungry, and so he feeds them. People were not designed to be sick, and so he heals them. People were not designed to die, and so he raises them. His whole ministry is just this snapshot forecast of where he is taking the world one day, that all things will be healed and made right, which means this. God cares about the world. And that means you are right to care about the world too. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You are, you are right to love coffee and music and art and, and mempops and animals. What that shows you is that none of that stuff is going away. It is all in the new heavens and the new earth beautifully glorified and finally made right. That's the magnitude of the Christian hope, the renewal of all things. Secondly, let's look at the wonder of it, though. If we go a little bit deeper, you begin to say, okay, this is mind-blowing. Let's look at the wonder of this. And and there's so many things that we could say here, but I want to give you just two highlights from this passage of, our, uh, of the wonder of this vision here. Here's the first. Look at verse 1. If you notice, at the very end, it talks about, and the sea was no more. That in this restored world, there's no more sea, no more ocean. And you're like, no more ocean? That's a bummer. No more 30A? No Hilton Head? Just land? Just like Kansas everywhere? Is that, is that what we're looking forward to? Well, you have to remember, when Revelation was written, this was, uh, this was a, a, a fishing culture, and the sea represented that which was untamable and unpredictable and, and, and dangerous. And so that image of the sea is used all throughout the Bible as this image of chaos, this image of just uncontrollable evil, just, just things, just pandemonium. And what this vision is telling you is that there will come a day, finally, where there is finally peace, where there is calm, where there's no more need for security systems and to carry pepper spray and to buy insurance. All of that is healed in this new world, which I think is extremely helpful for people like me, people who are perfectionists, people who are um, control freaks. 
If you're anything like me, uh, then you get very overwhelmed very easily. When, when I think about the amount of stuff that's on my plate, of stuff that I have to do, of obligations and deadlines and projects and this and that and that, it's easy to kind of break out in hives and get stressed. And when I go through life stressed and freaking out, I, I, I want to control everything. I want to organize everything. I want everything to kind of be calm and to be peaceful. But what ends up happening is that I typically just kind of go through life uh, constantly irritable, constantly prickly, because it's so chaotic, it's so overwhelming. Uh, you know, you resent interruptions. You uh, get frustrated when there's long lines at the grocery store or at the pharmacy. It's, uh, you just go through life uh, prickly, can't catch up. And what's, what's great for me and for maybe you if you fall into that category about this vision is it gives you this vision that one day, someday, the world will be made right again. And this fallen world that we now occupy, it is messy and it is chaotic and it is frustrating. And to try to control it and try to live a life where there's gonna be peace and calm and organization and control, it's a fool's errand. This world will always be chaotic. But knowing that the chaos has an expiration date stamped into it, gives you the ability to endure it. Gives you the ability to say, okay, I've got resources now to handle the stress and handle the chaos. I can let some of it fall off of my back. I, I don't have to be so demanding and controlling to try to make the world do something that it just can't do. And you start to get a little taste of freedom. That's what this vision provides for you. The wonder of a life where it's peaceful. That's the first highlight that I want to show you. Here's the second. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The second wonder of this Christian hope is that you get to experience unfiltered intimacy with God himself, where you actually behold his face, where faith becomes sight, where you get to see him and are assured with absolute confidence now he is with me and he is for me and he is good. That is what all of our hearts deep down are actually, actually craving. That's what we want, intimacy and communion with him. And this vision, the wonder of this vision is that you get it. In fact, it even gets sweeter. Look at verse 4. Look at, what it, look at what being in his presence looks like. Here's verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Just think about that. In the new heavens and the new earth, in the presence of God, that means there are no more funerals. There are no more school shootings. No more suicide, no more police brutality, no more losing grandparents or parents or spouses or children, no more cancer, no more car accidents, no more pandemics. Death is no more. And it keeps going. Look at this. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more pain, no more crying, no more pain from your family. The, the screaming, the fighting, the fear, the pain that nobody's getting along here. 
the, the deep, horrific wounds of things that have been done to you that nobody else knows about, all of it healed. No more pain from your friends of the betrayal or the rejection or the backstabbing or, or, or this feeling of nobody understands me, nobody gets me. I don't have to know each of your stories to not know that, every, that there's just a lot of pain in this room. And what I think is so tender is, is, this, is this detail in verse 4 uh, just of how personal it is when he says that he himself will be the one that wipes away your tears. He applies his tenderness and his love and his grace to the places of your shame, to the places of your pain, that personal, that intimate. That is the wonder of all wonders, that your particular pain, if it's physical chronic pain, if it's just the pain in your own soul, the wounds that you and I always carry around in this life, that one day, someday, those particular wounds and losses will be healed and made right because you find yourself in the tender embrace of a healing God who is committed to making everything right, everything broken, healed, everything sad, untrue. That is this God that we are moving towards. The moral arc of the universe does indeed bend towards justice, shalom, peace. Final question. How do you get it? How do you hook into that? How do you access that? Well, let's look at that lastly, briefly. Look at verse 7. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The spring of the water of life. That is a picture of utter refreshment, the fullness of satisfaction. All of your aches and longings and cravings finally met and satisfied. And here's what's crazy. He says he gives it, just gives it, without payment, meaning it's free. It's on the house. No payment required, which means you have to do nothing in order to get it. No hoops to jump through. You don't have to be good to get this. You don't have to be a leader to get this. You don't have to be uh, nice to get this. What this passage says and what the rest of the Bible attests to, that there's really only one prerequisite. You just have to be thirsty. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And you start to think, okay, how can just thirsty people show up and get this outrageous and excessive degree of hope that's just free, that feels off. How can something that big be that free? Here's how. It's fascinating. Right before Jesus went to the cross, you know that he, he starts talking about drinking, not like in an inappropriate way. He just starts to, he starts to use this like language of drinking. Like when he's in the garden praying, right before he goes to his crucifixion, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's looking ahead to the cross, and he's, he's using this image that it's like it's a cup. I'm about to go to the cross, and I'm about to drink something, not interested in doing it. Is there any way I can get out of this? And then he goes to the cross, and he ends up drinking that metaphorical cup, and you see him on the cross writhing in agony, like he just, you know, just chugged poison. And he's gasping, and he's, and he's crying out. And yet in the midst of that, he also talks about that he's thirsty, 
It's interesting, in John chapter 19, 28, he calls out, I am thirsty. In Psalm 22, which is a, a messianic psalm, a psalm that's written kind of looking forward to the Messiah's crucifixion, it says that his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. Here you have Jesus in Revelation 21 as the source of living water, and yet on the cross he seems to be dying of thirst. He is the fountain of satisfaction, and yet he is withering away by spiritual dehydration. And you wonder, okay, what in the world is going on? Well, all throughout the Bible, there is this metaphor to, to describe God's wrath and his punishment and, and, his, and his anger against sin and injustice, and, and it's described as a cup. All throughout the Bible, that's the metaphor, that he's going to take this cup of his wrath and he's going to pour it on his enemies and make, it, make them drink it all the way down to the bottom. And what Jesus does is he steps in and he volunteers to drink that cup himself. He volunteers to step in and take in that poison of God's wrath for the sins of the world and he drinks it all the way down to the bottom and it totally obliterates him from the inside out. It's like being hot and sweaty on a, on a hot Memphis summer day and going and getting a tall glass of hot sand and just drinking it to the bottom. You're just gagging, coughing, crying out, tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth and here is this man in a cosmic way, drinking in death. Why? So that he can offer you the spring of the water of life. He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink from the cup of salvation. How do you get it? You just show up thirsty because he paid it all. He paid for it so that it would be free to you. He drinks in death so that he can give you life. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 37. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's all you got to do. Show up to Jesus with thirst, and he will give you a foretaste of the satisfaction that is to come. And when you get in on that action, that's what gives you the resources to be able to endure the pain and the challenges and the suffering and the brutality of this life with hope and faith and, and love. That's what gives you the resources to pursue justice and mercy right here in our city and to not give up and to keep going. That's what gives you the resources to to worship even as you weep. As the um, hymn goes, there is a world where pleasure reigns. No mourning soul shall roam its plains. And to that land of peace and glory, I shall want to go someday. I shall want to go someday. So if you are thirsty this morning, the invitation for you and for me would be this. Come to Jesus and drink. Let me pray. Father, I pray knowing that those of us in this room, we are hurting and we are thirsty. And I pray that you would anchor us in this vision of the world to come, purchased by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And I pray that you would give us the resources by your spirit to lean into this vision more and more as thirsty people, as weak and needy and hurting people, as people that are getting beat up by the world around us. And I pray that that would give us the resolve, the perseverance, the kindness to move out in love, knowing that we have this hope purchased by Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.